This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 11, verses 1 through 17, skipping down to verse 26, continuing into chapter 12, verse 1, through the first part of verse 7. We will begin on page 262 in the Bibles in your rows if you'd like to follow along as I read. 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah, the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, She lamented over her husband, and when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. 
The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Two names are unforgettably linked with David. One name is the giant Goliath, the other the woman Bathsheba. Physical forms attached to these names could hardly be more different. Goliath, an ugly, cruel giant. Bathsheba, beautiful, gentle woman. Goliath, an evil tyrant. Bathsheba, an innocent victim. But different as Goliath and Bathsheba are in character, appearance, and spirit, there's a similarity in their relation to David. Both bring David into a field of testing, a place of encounter that reveals something about David's heart. In some ways, this story gets us back to David as a person of prayer, a person who's living their life before God, in the presence of God, attentive to God, with God. But here... David is no longer fresh-faced and innocent. He's been scarred in battle, scarred by life. He's experienced failure and disappointment. He's had wrongs done to him, and now he's the one perpetrating the wrongs upon others. He's the one sinning against others. This is a story of guilt and grace. David returns to prayer, but only after a spectacular failure. And it's been said that we take strange consolation in the failure of others, well, in that case, this morning, I offer you strange consolation. We need the story of David and Goliath, but we also need the story of David and Bathsheba. And as we walk through it this morning, we're going to see something uh, about the nature of sin that we learn from this story. We're going to see something about the way that God tends to work in unmasking, unearthing, bringing to light sin. And then finally, we'll see, well, what happens next, all right? The nature of sin, something about the way that God works to bring it to light, and then what do you do after that happens? So first, the nature of sin. And let's review what actually happens here in chapter 11, what Grace just read to us, because it's important that we look full in the face what David has actually done here. Verse 1, the story begins with the army out uh, fighting, a little skirmish with the Ammonites, and uh, the key point is David is not out fighting with his men. We'll come back to that uh, in a moment. But then in verse 2, so he's not out fighting, he's not with his, uh, his friends in the army, he's instead uh, walking on the palace roof, uh, positioned where he can see into the courtyards of the nearby homes, and he sees a woman bathing, and she's extraordinarily beautiful, we're told. And you might read the story and think, well, what is she doing bathing outside. I mean, isn't that being immodest? Is she entrapping him in some way? No, 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 no. This was normal. There's no indoor plumbing, remember, in the ancient world. Bathtubs were always in courtyards, normally protected from view, unless you're at 
a high point where you can see down into other people's uh, backyards, right? Like at the top of a king's palace. Verse 3, David thinks, i got to find out who this is. And so he sends someone to inquire after here. And here's the part of the story I don't want you to miss. Because this reveals a bit of how hardened David had become to sin. The servant comes back and says, This is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You know who Uriah the Hittite is. When David was a fugitive, when he was running from Saul who was trying to kill him, there was a band of soldiers who were loyal to David, and they risked their lives for David. They left their homes and families to come and join David in the wilderness out of their love and out of their loyalty to him. They were called David's mighty men. And one of them was Uriah the Hittite. It's not a stretch to say that this is one of the men in all the kingdom that David owed the most to. And here he betrays him. Verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, some have wondered about Bathsheba's culpability in all this. And all I can tell you is uh, the focus of this story, the emphasis that's placed within the biblical text, is that the sin here is squarely on David's Shoulders. I mean, look at the verbs. David sent for her. David took her. Who's in control here, right? David has all the power and he uses it to take what he wants. And I think we're meant to see, take advantage of Bathsheba. And when Nathan comes in the next chapter to expose the sin, remember, it's David that he confronts, not Bathsheba. Verse 5. Bathsheba sends word later to the palace, I'm pregnant. Not the first time those words have changed lives, not the last time either. Verse 6 and following, David is uh, David's good at dealing with problems. We've seen this, right? And he's going to deal with this one. So he sends for Uriah, her husband, and gives him a month's leave from the army. He just expects that Uriah will go home and be with his wife, and they'll assume the pregnancy uh, will come as a result of this. But Uriah won't go home. This throws David for a loop. Uriah says, how can I go home to the comforts of my house and my wife while all my men are sleeping in fields and facing dangers in the fronts? And so instead he bunks in the servants' quarters near the palace until David will send him back out into the field again. David tries one more time. He has Uriah in under the auspices of having uh, an update about what's going on in the war. He gets Uriah drunk, thinking surely now he'll go back to his house, but he doesn't. Uriah stays close by. So, verse 14, David sends Uriah back out to battle. And talk about cold-blooded. David writes a letter to the commander of the army, to Joab, with instructions on how to put Uriah in grave danger. And he makes Uriah carry the letter. Uriah is unknowingly delivering his own death sentence. So Joab gets the message. He puts Uriah's group into a forward contingent, and then he pulls back the supporting troops, leaving Uriah and his division exposed. In verse 17, we're told the plan works. Some of the servants of David fell, Uriah the Hittite among them. So think about the story for a second. David 
covets Uriah's wife, he commits adultery, he murders Uriah, and then he lies to cover the whole thing up. That's like half the Ten Commandments in one story, right, that David is breaking here. So in some sense, then, this is an instructive story for us as we're talking about the nature of sin. Well, what do we learn about the nature of sin? Just a couple of quick things. And the first is this. We are all capable of the most awful things. We are all capable of the most awful things. If you were here last week or even weeks previous in this series, you probably got whiplash from the Bible's portrayal of David. Because we've seen David at his best. We've seen David's love and compassion for Mephibosheth. But here, David does the unmistakable. He does the predatory. He does the inexcusable to Bathsheba. Same guy. We've seen David as the loving friend of Jonathan. Now we see him as the backstabber of Uriah. Same guy. We've seen the courage of David before Goliath and Saul, and now we see him lying and hiding to cover up his sin like a coward. Same guy. This is the David who wrote in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And now God rebukes him through Nathan in the next chapter, saying, you have despised the word of the Lord. Same guy. So what do we learn? We learn that the seeds of even the very worst things, the greatest evil, exists within all of our hearts. And it's tempting to just pass this off. I'd never do anything like this. But are you better than David? Or Abraham? Or Joseph? Or Moses? Or Solomon? Or Peter? Or Paul? Why does the Bible tell these stories of spectacular sin and failure? Because these things are in all of us as well, at least in seed form. Some have called this the banality of evil, the ordinariness of evil. That phrase originated during the Nuremberg trials. The Nazi conspirators and the guards were made to stand trial Uh, for human rights violations. Everybody was grasping for how something like the Holocaust could have happened in a uh, modern society, an educated society like Germany. How could there be that kind of evil, such great wickedness, and carried out by so many people who played a part in this large-scale wickedness and evil? But what was particularly frightening was how common and ordinary the Nazis seemed standing trial. Going into the trials, the observers expected to see monsters on the stand. They were struck by how banal and ordinary they seemed to be. They even had character witnesses who testified that they were kind and loving parents, great employees, wonderful neighbors, and so on. Perpetrators of great evil who looked normal. They looked like us. And listen, I'm not suggesting that we're all Nazis or... Or even that we're doing what David did in this story. But what I am suggesting and what I think the Bible is teaching is that the seeds of those things live within each of us. And a little seed, you know, can grow up into a mighty oak tree. Remember when you, as a kid, you might have learned, right, that an acorn could produce a giant oak tree? It was almost hard to believe, right? 
I mean, it's still hard to believe when you look at it to see that uh, something that small can become something that huge. But under the right conditions, the right soil, the right fertilizer, the right rain and temperature, a tiny little acorn not only can become just a, a giant oak tree, it can actually become a whole forest. In the next chapter, Nathan says, you are the man. Well, it's my job to say to you this morning, you are the man. You are the woman. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Well, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We'll come back to this in a moment, but, but do you know that those seeds are there in you? Are you aware of the fact that those seeds of evil exist in you? And then are you working to, to kill it? Are you working to snuff them out? It's a lot easier to smash an acorn than it is to raise a whole forest of evil, right? The Puritans used to call this mortification. To look for the seeds of sin within us and try to kill it. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And the first lesson here is that we're all capable of the worst kinds of evil. But then secondly, what are, what are some of those conditions under which those seeds grow into something so much bigger? And there's a, a lot of situations that the Bible identifies, a lot of situations, conditions under which sin grows. And I can't talk about them all this morning. But let me mention three that I think are right here in our text in David's story this morning. The first thing just to note is that David was bored. David was bored. The story starts in verse 1 with the army out, right? They're dealing the finishing blows on this conflict that they've been having with a neighboring nation, the Ammonites. And David's back at home. Now, he certainly earned the right to this. He has been out in the front lines most of his life. He's not weak. He's not a coward. This isn't a major battle. He doesn't need to be there. But the thing to notice, this is a change, And you can scrap and work so hard that when you finally get to sit back and enjoy the fruits of your success, you don't exactly know what to do with yourself. And boredom and anemia can set in. This is why retirement has the potential, at least, to be a very dangerous place for you spiritually. David's got nothing to do. Let's take a stroll around the palace, survey the kingdom. Ooh, she looks good, and then... He's off and running. David was bored. Secondly, David was entitled. I think you know this, but people at the top, people in leadership and any kind of organization, they often make a great deal of sacrifices to do what they do. And much of that goes unnoticed, right? Leaders often are doing things behind the scenes that nobody takes note of. They're uh, spending lots of hours that nobody sees. They put up with a lot in order to help things move forward. They take a lot of criticism, leaders do, some of which is misguided and false and politically motivated. And it's very easy then in those moments for self-pity and self-righteousness to set in. To say to yourself, nobody knows what I deal with to make this organization work. Nobody knows all the extra that I do that nobody sees. Nobody knows how late are my nights or how many burdens that I bear or how much I sacrifice and give up for this. And so then it's very easy for an opportunity to come in, for a bribe, for embezzlement, for an affair, and to think, to rationalize, I deserve this. I deserve this. David was bored. David was entitled Finally, David had power. Sometimes people do things because they can. There are others who would do something similar, but they don't have the opportunity 
It's all kinds of limiting factors, but the more power you have, the more opportunity for temptation to set in or to act on it. And power itself actually is a temptation, temptation to live like a God, to say to everyone else, do my will, my will be done, instead of submitting to the one true God. The last lesson here as we're thinking about uh, the nature of sin, it's just to ask the question, why is this story in the Bible? Why is this story in the Bible? You know, somebody has once said of Christianity, you know, the thing I can't take about your holy book, I can't, the thing I can't deal with in the Bible is that all your good guys are bad guys. I mean, it seems like that, isn't it? All your good guys are bad guys. And sometimes that's lobbed as a complaint against or an argument against the trustworthiness of the Bible, but that only works as a critique of the Bible if you assume that the point of these stories is to give us a moral exemplar in which to follow, in which case all your good guys are bad guys. That is a little stain on on the Bible if, if the goal is just to tell you how to be or who to imitate. That's not the purpose of the scriptures. It's not the purpose of these stories. The biblical record is there to show us real life, And then ultimately to show us how God's mercy and grace can rescue us. All right, so first, the nature of sin. But secondly, let's talk a little bit about how God tends to unmask it, unearth it, bring it into the light. Chapter 11 ends with David getting away with it, pretty much, right? But don't mistake God's delay for his disregard. Don't mistake God's patience for apathy. In chapter 11, it looks like David's going to get away from it, away with it, and it, it looks like all the action is flowing from human volition here. The word sinned, I don't know if you heard that when Grace was reading, uh, appears 12 times in chapter 11. And it's all the humans doing the sending. They're controlling the action. David sends the army out to battle. He sends somebody to find out about Bathsheba. He sends to get Bathsheba, bring him into his bed. Bathsheba sends word that she's pregnant. David sends for Uriah. Then he sends Uriah back into the army. He sends a message to Joab. Joab sends word that Uriah is dead. And finally, David sends for Bathsheba so that he can marry her after the period of mourning. The word sin comes up 12 times in chapter 11. But only one time in chapter 12, and someone far more important is doing the sending. Chapter 12, verse 1, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan shows up and he preaches David a sermon. Now, David doesn't know it's a sermon, and that's actually part of the charm and the effectiveness of it. There's no pews. Nathan has no pulpit. He just tells David a story. And it begins, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man has this uh, vast estate. He has all kinds of fields and flocks and herds. And uh, the poor man, by contrast, has just one little ewe lamb. And it says in verse 3 that, that he brought up this lamb. He, he grew up with the lamb in some sense. And the Hebrew actually says, uh, it makes it sound like he nursed the lamb back to health. As if uh, we're supposed to believe that this little lamb, that the only reason the poor man could even uh, buy it is that it was sickly. It didn't look good, but he had nursed this little lamb back to health. And we're told that he loved the lamb. He ate, the lamb ate from his table and drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. This poor farmer loved this little lamb. 
like his own daughter, like a child. By the way, it is worth asking here really quickly. Do you remember what David's job was before he was a king? He was a shepherd, right? He took care of lambs. You might say that this sermon of Nathan is perfectly contextualized to David's situation, right? So don't listen to anybody that tells you preachers should always preach things the same way no matter who the audience is. This is the most contextualized sermon in all the Bible, directly to David's situation. The story goes on. Rich man has a visitor, hospitality culture, right? So it's important that he provide a good meal for his guests, but the rich man is unwilling. Out of all his vast flocks, out of all his great estate, he's unwilling to kill one of the animals uh, that he owns. And so he goes and he takes this poor man's little lamb, the lamb that he loves, the lamb that, that, that feeds at his table, the lamb that sleeps in his arms at night. The rich man takes it from him, kills it, in order to serve dinner to his guest. Nathan's good at this. David's drawn in and he erupts with anger. This man should make restitution four times for what he stole, which is according to the law of Moses. But then David goes beyond the law of Moses and he says, you know what? This man deserves to die. And that's when Nathan knows he's got him. And he drops the bomb. David, you're the man. So what do we learn? Well, we learn first, when a sermon works, when it really works, this is how it works. Right? The Holy Spirit, when, when, it, when the Holy Spirit is working in a good sermon or a good teaching, it always goes from a third-person story to a second-person challenge to a first-person response. I mean, think about it here, right? Third-person story, something that we're hearing about out here somewhere else. Uh, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and one poor. We're, we're analyzing somebody else's story, right? But then all of a sudden, somewhere in the sermon, somewhere in the teaching, somewhere the Holy Spirit makes it clear, by the way, this is you. This is not just a story about other people. This is about you. And then finally, when the Spirit's working, there's a first-person response. I've got to change. I'm wrong. I've sinned against the Lord, as David says down in chapter 12, verse 13. Eugene Peterson put it this way. This is the gospel focus. You are the man. You are the woman. The gospel is never about somebody else. It's always about you, about me. The gospel is never a truth in general. It's always a truth in specific. The gospel is never a commentary on ideas or culture or conditions. It's always about actual persons, actual pain, actual trouble, actual sin. You, me, who you are and what you've done, who I am and what I've done. One moment David's listening to a pastor preach a sermon about someone else getting all worked up about somebody else's sin. And the next moment he hears it, you're the man. And this is when you know the Holy Spirit is working in your heart when you're listening to a sermon, receiving a teaching, reading scripture, and you go from thinking about how someone else is wrong or how somebody else really needs to hear this thing, and boom, it hits home in your own life, your own heart, your own situation. You are the man. You are the woman. The second thing is that you might have noticed here that you are the man is the conclusion, not the introduction to Nathan's sermon. And the reason for that, I think, is that Nathan's goal here is David's transformation, not his condemnation. 
I mean, Nathan could have gone in there, guns blazing, and said, David, you're a liar and a murderer and an abuser and an adulterer. God told me what you've done, and I'm going to expose it for everyone to see. Now, why doesn't he do that? We might say, well, I mean, he's scared. David's a powerful man. Yeah, but listen, Nathan's not a coward. And he still ends up confronting David in the end, right? He says, you are the man. So the risk of jail and death is there at the end of the sermon as well as at the beginning. So it can't be that he's afraid. Why does he do this? Nathan tells this story. He draws David in because his aim is David's transformation, not his condemnation. Or to put it another way, the goal is not just to tell the truth, but to tell the truth in a way that David actually hears it. There are some people whose whole goal, it seems, is to be able to say at the end of the day, I told them the truth, right? I condemned them, and then to maybe pat yourself on the back for being so courageous and valiant. Sure, they didn't listen. Sure, they tossed me out, but that just proves all the more how valiant I am. I'm for the truth. That's not Nathan here. He doesn't come in haranguing. He aims to speak the truth in a way that David can hear it because he really wants David to repent. He really wants David to change. So go and do likewise. Now, Nathan's a master at this, and we're probably not going to be as good at it as he is, but our aim should be the same, to tell the truth in love, to long for transformation rather than condemnation. Remember what Jesus says in John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The last thing to think here about the way that God unmasks sin is that he very often does this in the context of community with other people. And thinking about that, we need to understand, we need to be a Nathan to the people in our lives. And also, you need some Nathans in your own life. Your friends really do need you to be a Nathan in their life. They need you to love them enough to have the courage to speak the truth even hard truths into their life. Yes, do it with grace and gentleness and respect and in a way that you think they'll be receptive to it, but do it. Be willing to speak up. Love your friends enough to call them out. They'll need that to grow. You'll be an instrument of grace in their life when that happens. And then look, you you need Nathans in your life too. So the question is, do you have any? Are there people like that in your life that you given permission to speak to you that way, to reflect back to you what is going on in your life or how things are perceived that you're doing? This is very often how God works to unmask sin in our lives through others who are willing to speak the truth to us. Because a lot of the times we can't see it on our own. Psalm 19 verse 12 says, who can discern his own errors? We can't see ourselves clearly. Our faults are often hidden to us and so you need Nathans in your life. I suppose this is an argument for joining a community group or a women's Bible study or a men's Bible study this fall. We've talked about the nature of sin. We've talked about how God unmasks it. But what happens next? David's sin comes to light. It's unmasked by God through Nathan. What next? This really is the rest of chapter 12, and we didn't read it this morning, but I'll just point out a few things. Because again, David is instructive for us. To David's credit, first, he repents. 
Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David doesn't say much here, but maybe that's a good thing. There's no spinning, no excuses, no searching for a loophole. It's just a simple, straightforward confession of sin. And it's not a one-off thing. David continues to do this throughout the rest of his life. Two of the most famous psalms, Psalm 51, which we sang from and prayed from earlier this morning, but also Psalm 32, are David's recounting of this story. He puts uh, these prayers of confession and repentance uh, down on paper and is circulated around. He's transparent with his sins and is willing to revisit it and have others do so as well. David repents. There's a story from history. Uh, during the Roman Empire, the emperor Theodosius once gave an order for the killing of some people in the city of Thessalonica. It was a terrible slaughter, actually. And uh, he came to worship. Emperor Theodosius came to worship at the church in Milan, and Ambrose was the archbishop, archbishop there. He's most known for being a mentor to St. Augustine. But Ambrose is the presiding bishop as this uh, emperor comes to worship, and uh, Ambrose refuses to give him communion. Gutsy thing to do to the emperor of Rome. And the emperor says, That's not fair. David committed worse sins than I did. And Ambrose answered, You've imitated David in his crime. Now imitate him in his repentance. When God brings your sin to light, when you're confronted, repent, own it, ask for forgiveness. And then, secondly, recognize that there still may be consequences. Even when forgiveness is offered, there can still be consequences that come as a result of sin. Depending on the nature of the sin or the extent of the damage done, it's possible that things don't just get to go back and be the way that they were before. We have to recognize that that's a possibility, and sometimes that happens. And that's true here in our circumstance in this story. Again, think of the gravity of the situation. Bathsheba had been greatly wronged, exploited, and demeaned. Uriah had been shamefully treated, deceived, and then killed. And consequences flow from those wrongs, pain and suffering, death and laments. And we won't walk through them all this morning, but in verses 10 to 14, Nathan lays out the consequences of this sin, including war and tension in the kingdom, calamity in David's house, loss of reputation in the community, and even the death of a child. David repents. There should be, we should recognize there may be consequences even when forgiveness is offered. But then thirdly, there's an assurance of pardon here. Verse 13, Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The Lord has put away your sin. The language there is similar to what David would write later in Psalm 103, where he said, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Nathan tells David that we have a God who can take away the worst things in us, the worst things about us. And do you know that as well? That this is the kind of God we have. This is the kind of grace that we can receive. No matter what you've done or what's been done to you, there is nothing that can stain you so deeply that God can't make you clean. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. David's fortunate in that he gets the words of assurance directly from Nathan the prophet. He gets a direct 
assurance of pardon. The Lord has put away your sin. But we get something even better. We get to look to the atoning work of Jesus Christ who died for us. And we get to do that each week when we come to worship. We get to be reminded of Christ's work for us. We get to do it each week as we come to the Lord's Supper. We get to see our pardon in his body and blood. We see his love and welcome and that he invites us to commune with him. David, we've been saying throughout this whole series, prepares us for Jesus. The story of David prepares us to understand the story of Jesus. And here is no exception, except that perhaps it's mainly here in our story, a dissimilarity between the two. Because unlike David... Jesus always honored God's word. Unlike David, Jesus used his power only to serve and never to exploit. Jesus didn't send someone to the front lines to die for him, but he rather went to the front lines to die for us. Jesus didn't betray his friends. He was betrayed by them. And he allowed himself to be handed over like a a lamb to the slaughter. David stands rightly accused and eventually forgiven, but Jesus, completely innocent, condemned to die on the cross. Nathan looks at David and says, you are the man. That is, the guilt is on you. When Jesus is on trial in John 19, Pontius Pilate looks at Jesus and says, behold the man. This is the one on whom the guilt will fall as Jesus pays for the sins of the world. So yes, the message this morning is to be a Nathan and to get some Nathans in your life. But more than anything else, We're called to run to Jesus who died for you and who welcomes you into his presence still. So the band's gonna come. We're gonna sing another song and come to the Lord's Supper here in a moment. But let's pray as we do and apply these things even as we come to the supper. Would you pray with me? We're about to sing, Great Father of Mercies, thy goodness I own and the covenant love of that crucified son. Lord, we ask that you would help us to learn from David's story. Not to make peace with the seeds of sin that exist in our own lives. Rather to do battle against them. To repent when sin comes to light. We either recognize it ourselves or it's come to light through others. Lord, would you help us to be a Nathan for others willing to speak the truth into the lives of our friends and Also, would you help us to welcome people into our life who can do that for us? And more than anything, Lord, we desire to run to Jesus who died for us to make us clean. We pray this in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.